Today's quote comes from the poet William Wordsworth from his poem, Ode, Intimation of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass or glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. Hey all, I'm Paul Sievers, interpreter with Great Parks of Hamilton County, and you are listening to Take It Outdoors, a podcast where you can enjoy the outdoors from the indoors. Well, it is officially spring. Longer days, warmer temperatures, the opening of your favorite ice cream shop, and of course, flowers. Here in Hamilton County, we are part of the Eastern Woodland Forest, and that is a forest that used to stretch from one side of the state to the other, with the canopy so thick, early settlers would go for days without seeing the sun. And we of course know sunlight is a key ingredient for plants to grow, So how is it that there is a large group of flowers called spring ephemerals that flourish on the forest floor? To answer this question and more about spring ephemerals, we are joined in studio by Great Parks interpreter Julie Stubbs. Then we will take it outdoors with Tom Hughes to look a little closer at one of our earliest blooming flowers, skunk cabbage. Julie, thanks for joining us on Take It Outdoors. Thanks for inviting me, Paul. Julie, first off, what exactly is a spring ephemeral? I mean, ephemeral kind of has that meaning of short-lived? Yeah, short-lived and, and fleeting to the eye. Um, spring ephemerals grow and reproduce very quickly to take advantage of optimal conditions in the springtime. And they're perennials, right? I mean... Yes, they have two growth phases. One is the below-ground phase and one is above-ground. So hypogeus is below-ground where they're producing roots and buds into the fall and even into the early winter. Yeah, I did say winter there. And the epigeus part is above ground where there's leaves and the buds and flowering and seeding takes place. So what we're seeing is the epigeus aspect of their growth. In wintertime, of course, they're beneath ground and we're not, we're not getting that visual. So from that standpoint, they're very fleeting. Like I said at the top, I mean, we're just into spring and we're seeing a lot of things coming out. But I mean, the trees are still pretty much bare and that's these plants are really taking advantage of that. Yeah, it's it's really a race for time. I, I liken it to, to frogs and metamorphosis. You know, frogs are often laying eggs in vernal pools that are going to dry up. So if the tadpoles don't change in time and start breathing air on land, that's the end of their life. And in, in a sense, wildflowers are a little bit similar in that they need to get through that reproductive cycle um, before the light is, is reduced in the forest by the overhead canopy and the shrub layer leafing out. So they are perennials, and a lot of times... When people think perennials, I mean, they're thinking more woody shrubs that they buy from a garden center. Absolutely. When we think of smaller flowers, we think of annuals that yes. we have to plant each year. But these are smaller flowers. Does Is part of their smaller size have to do with such a short growing period? Yeah, there is a, there is a short growing time. So there is also, you know, a lack of uh, resources in terms of creating the photosynthesis that, that will allow them to be bigger. But it's also essential for them to be small because they, the weather is so, uh, can be quite extreme in March. You might have, like we had a couple of nights ago, we had a heavy downpour of rain in the night that was pounding, or you might get a late hard frost going on or a high wind. So being tiny and sort of packed down into the leaf litter there is somewhat of an advantage. Thinking of them as fragile uh, might, might be a mistake. So the harshness then comes in because it's just, it's so erratic. I mean, it can change from day to day, but I mean, really, these are very hardy plants. Yeah, I mean, they can endure a, a, a late winter storm. They can endure heavy rains, um, a hard frost in the evening. Um, on top of that, there's not a lot of pollinators. Um, they're not in there. Most of them are still sort of sleeping, so to speak. And in springtime, you've, you've got herbivores like white-tailed deer that have had a lean diet all winter, and then up come some brand-new, shiny spring ephemerals to eat. So there's, there's a lot of um, obstacles, environmental challenges for them, yeah. Essentially, then, if a spring ephemeral was to write a memoir, it might <laughs> go up to a a number one. I mean, these are... I think it'd be on the New York bestseller list. Yeah, yeah I think it would. Okay. How to be tough. I want to get into something called the Doctrine of Signatures. And this is something that has always fascinated me. It's the idea is hundreds, if not you know, a couple thousand years old. And even though science has largely disproven, I mean, 99% of 
these ideas, I've actually found some that still kind of hold to this, which in some, you know, sometimes it could be deadly. But so the doctrine of signatures is essentially the shape of a plant shows its uh, medicinal property for a similar shaped body part. Right, Gary, can you state that better than I do? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's the belief that natural objects um, that look like part of, a, of the human body could cure diseases that would arise in that part of the human body. But it's not just the shape of the plant. It might also be the color of the plant. Like bloodroot, for example, has a, yeah, an orangish, reddish colored sap, and it was used uh, to, to treat ailments of the blood and circulatory system. But also, it's about the plant's behavior sometimes, too. There's a plant called saxifrage, which grows on in rocky crevices and ledges, and the roots kind of work their way down into the roots, breaking rock, I suppose, with the, with the biological weathering. And so that was used to treat kidney stones. So it's more huh. than just the shape of the leaf. It might be the color of the plant. It might be the action of the plant. Can you, can you say that one more time? Just which sax, saxifrage. Sexifrage? Is it sexifrage? Yeah. No, I like how you say it. Sexifrage. Yeah. So I, I like to give Julie a hard time because she's from England and she says things like garage. And I always say, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but with sexifrage, she says it so much better than I do. So I never make fun of her for that one. Ever. Yeah. One of my favorites, and I know it's one that, one of the first ones that I start to see pop up is cut leaf toothwort. And its roots have teeth-like projections, so that helps. Its leaves do too, actually. If you th- think about it, the the serrated teeth. teeth. Yeah. yeah. And so that was to help with toothaches. Um, which, just as a, a little aside, the word wart it means plant or root. So basically, if you take tooth wart, it would you can translate that as you know into tooth plant. So that tells you exactly very straightforward. This plant will help you with this part of the body. Um, another one, hepatica, it's also called liverwort. And so the wart, that plant, helps with the liver. Doll's eyes, also used for optical problems. Oh, see, I didn't know. But that one is extremely deadly, right? I mean, that's, that's a, a highly toxic plant. Yeah. Although isn't hepatica also highly toxic? See, I want to... I think it'd be interesting to to try to trace this doctrine of signatures because so many of these are toxic plants. So I would say, okay, this plant is toxic to this part of the body. So say you, you take one and oh, it now hurt your eyes. Okay, well, it's okay because we have doll's eyes that will help your eyes. But then in taking doll's eyes, now you hurt your liver. So, oh, well, you hurt your liver. So now we have to take hepatica, but now hepatica hurt your kidneys. And so because of that, you now have to take and just follow this trail of yeah, I mean these signatures. These signatures rarely relate to actual cures, although we know that plants are used medicinally all of the time. But the signatures are not correlated to that. Yeah, I mean that's just fascinating, and, and it is when you go back, like in one of the, our very first episodes, we talked about how salamanders they believe were born of fire. I think that was even the title of the episode because when they would take the dead wood from the forest to burn it out would come these salamanders. And you observe that, you come up with a conclusion thousands of years ago when, with the science they had that made sense. And so... What's, what's most interesting to me is that, that just about every culture has looked at plants and, and, and designed these signatures from them. It's not just here. It's not just the Native Americans or the pioneers. It's just about every culture has done this over time and for thousands of years. I think from the first time people probably set eyes on plants that they, they figured this out and decided that this is how it worked. Yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. And I'm also glad that we kind of have the scientific method for, hey, <laughs> yeah. is this good for us? Is this not? As opposed to... It yeah. does help us to memorize plants, though. If you think about th- uh, plants like boneset, boneset has a couple of opposite leaves where the stem grows through the leaves, like you're sort of, you know, setting a broken bone, so to speak. And when you see that plant, boneset is a sort of, it, it's easy to remember. So from a naturalist point of view, it makes for great stories and it gives you a way to remember the plants. But in terms of the actual efficacy of the plants, uh, not so much. Another reason I'm also fascinated with spring ephemerals. I mean, one, you have just their 
these little guys that just tough it out in pretty harsh conditions. This doctrine of signatures that's kind of related to them is is pretty fascinating. But to me, they're also kind of like the beetles of the plant world. I mean, you have they're millions from Liverpool? of millions of beetles. What's that? They're from Liverpool. They're from <laughs> I'm sure they have spring ephemerals in Liverpool, yes, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they, th- there's just so many of them, and they can be so different. I mean, they're just such a diverse group, and I know spring ephemerals, it's not like, hey, this is one family of plants, sure. but, you know, it's, it's multiple families, so to group them into this idea of a spring ephemeral is, is somewhat of a... It's an umbrella. Yeah, Yeah, it's an umbrella, almost a generic type of term. Um, But still, it's just this incredible diversity. So I kind of wanted to go through just a couple of these. And I mean, we don't have time to go through all of them, obviously. Um, I mean, you can go on a hike here soon and you'll find two dozen different blooming flowers. And that's just in that one time, you know. Um, Some will come up early, some will come up a little bit later. So let's just dive in. So the first one that... I always think of, because it's typically one of the first ones that I ever see each year, is the spring beauty. Yeah, also known as fairy spuds or wild potatoes. Fairy spuds? Spuds, that's an English term for potato. Well, I, yeah, but I never knew fairies ate spuds. I didn't know that fairies existed. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> you got to have fun. Yes, they exist. <laughs> I mean, who else would eat the spuds? Another one that I really like is Trillium. There's a couple of species of Trillium around here. But I want to talk a little bit about how their seeds are dispersed. So I like big terms. I cannot lie. I feel like there's a word beginning with M about to appear. (laughs) So I like big nature words. They're just, they're fun to me. Um, And one related to Trillium is Myrmikokori. M-Y-R-M-E-C-O-C-H-O-R-Y. And if you forget that by the end of the podcast, it's okay. But to me, it's the coolest thing because it means seed dispersal by ants. Absolutely. Um, You know, again, ants are struggling for food too, probably at this time of year. And um, the the seeds of trilliums make elaisomes. They're they're little appendages that jut out of the seed that are full of lipids, fats, and, and some proteins, and they're very, very attractive to ants. So the ants will drag them away and, and will consume the fats, the fatty substances there, and leave them in a midden. So basically they're, they're planting them, they're being ant farmers, they're moving them into places where there's a nice microclimate, they're away from birds and mammals that might eat them, and you get nice clumps of flowers growing where these ants are planting, essentially planting the seeds. The elasomes are non-essential to the seed, and the seed is left intact. I think that's the coolest thing. It is cool. It's really cool. Who knew ants were farmers, right? Yeah. So, myrmikokori. I just, I love that. That's the cool. And there's other, other plants as well that are, um, their seeds are dispersed by myrmikokori, but trillium is one of, the, one of the big ones. Many of the spring ephemerals are actually... Tr- dispersed that way. I mean, the flowers are trying to increase their range and reproduce. I mean, that's that's what nature does. It's it's expanding its territory. So ants are, are a huge part of that in the springtime. What about mayapple? What about mayapple? <laughs> <laughs> so with mayapple... Oh, right, this sorry. Is, this, with mayapple, they're kind of s- similar to Trillium as well. And you know, we've talked about how hardy they are, but these are plants that will come up year after year, but they're actually seven, eight, or even older years before they bloom. Yeah, and, and they, need that, they need that double stem, the, the two leaves to actually bloom. They need the resources from that. But blooming and pr- producing that fruit that, that you know, starts off green, it looks a bit like a lemon when it's ripe. It takes a huge amount of resources, so it takes a lot of years to get that, that those resources together to be able to photosynthesize because they're only photosynthesizing during a short portion of the year. Um, mayapples actually don't produce any nectar, so they seem to do better when they're around other flowering plants that, that use, utilize bees because the bees eventually catch on. Hey, there's no nectar here. Why should I stay here? They produce lots of pollen, though. 
And they're not just um, producing the, the, the bright fruits, they're also spreading by these underground stems called rhizomes. So when you see a stand of mayapples, you're seeing plants that are gen genetically identical because, because they've spread through rhizomes as opposed to seeds, more than likely. And some people refer to them as mandrakes. Yes. Because, and that's something... And we don't really have actual mandrakes here. These right. aren't mandrakes, but that's something from... Yeah, I think that Your word home, is right? used in a, in a lot of for a lot of different common species names. Another name is is raccoon berry because they're consumed by animals. And in some parts of the range, it it seems like box turtles are part of the dispersal mechanism too, in that they ingest those fruits and, and then of course excrete the excrete the seeds afterwards. And going back to the doctrine of signatures. I think mandrakes, the roots look like a man, so it was kind of this cure-all. And yeah. with mayapple, their roots look similar. Mandrake, uh, a little bit like American ginseng in, in the sense of that was called uh, man root or man essence and was used to treat the whole body, to sort of empower the whole body. And that's been used in, in many, many cultures. I mean, it was exported to China since the early 1700s. That might explain some of its, its rarity. It's still obviously used in medicines today. Too. Yeah, and so that is one, though, that has been scientifically shown to improve yeah. memory and yes. things, right? Yes. So that's, okay. So, I mean, that's one of the few One of the very few. Actually, the very, very few. It works. Right. All right. So next, I want to talk about violets. Ooh. And... That's a labyrinth. I mean, because there's a number of species. I mean, we just see violet, we think violet, but there's, I mean, actually yeah. quite a few species, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. And there's another big word. I only have two big words today. We had myrmicocori, and this is the other one, is cleistogamous, another one of my favorite words. And I even have, long story short, I was listening to an, an interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda one day, of course, of Hamilton fame. My and I hero. said, you know what? I want to write a, a musical about spring ephemerals. And so I came up with this little rhyme. So um, bear you, with me. Would you like a beatbox for this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Tony, um, <laughs> yeah, if you, <laughs> I want to hear you try first. <laughs> if not, uh, I think Tony can, can lay down some beats here for me. But all right, here we go. And I hesitate to do this because I feel like people are going to hear this and then they're going to like swoop me up to, to New York and Broadway and say, hey, recommission you to write this. So I'm a little hesitant because I like my job here. I don't want to have to be whisked away to New York, but here we go. All right. I'm a clystogamous flower. To self-pollinate, I have the power. I need no other flower to reproduce in the spring hour. Over the leaves, I do not tower. I stay close to the ground, but I do not cower. For I alone have the power to survive when the environment turns sour. Wow. Now I'm hoping from context clues they've learned what clystogamous. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, a clystogamous flower is a self-pollinating flower that doesn't open. Yeah, Yeah, clystogamous means closed. Um, they're typically not green. When you look at, uh, say, a violet, you might see something that looks like a bud, and it might look a bit like a or a defective-looking flower. Maybe it looks a bit like a bud or a pod. Um, those would be clystogamous flowers. Many of them are underground, and they look somewhat whitish. It's basically a, a violet's insurance plan. If there aren't any pollinators, uh, all the structures are there to be able to, to reproduce and produce seeds. Flowers that open are called chasmogamous, so we, we lied. We used three big words this time. Yeah, but I've never heard that one. That's a good one, chat. It's like, ca like chasm? Like, would that be yeah. a similar? Yeah. So an opening. Okay. Maybe it's chasmogamous. But that, that's not the whole story with violets, though. I mean, I mean with, with violets, they've got so many sort of mechanisms. You know, five petals that, you know, two pairs are acting as flags to sort of flag down insects. Here I am. And then you've got a, a, a lower petal that's like a landing strip. And if you can see with uh, ultraviolet sensing eyes, you've got a place to find the nectar guides. Um, you've got all the hairs there that I'm not sure why violets have hairs. I mean, there's some theories, I guess. Maybe it's a way for insects to climb. Maybe it's to stop the nectar from diluting i'm not sure but there's so many things going on with with violets um that make them really really successful plants as my lawn will attest to <laughs> mine will as well and yeah. i'm okay with that though. i'm okay, I'm with, okay it with it too so it's basically its own little airport 
Yeah, it is. Without it's, the TSA. It's, it's its own. Yeah, exactly. Which is even better, right? Yes. It's its own little airport. It, it is. The anthers are, are partly hidden in violets, so bees don't actually have to brush against them. It just sort of drops little bits of pollen onto the bees' back. And uh, yeah, and they're very, very successful plants. And again, ants are involved with, with uh, what's that nice word again? Myrmicocory. That's right. Yeah. They're ant farmers to violets too. You know, one, one, thing's, one thing about the eliasomes is they're a bit like the fruits that are made by certain plants. They're sort of like a primitive version of a fruit. The difference would be if you had a service berry tree and your cedar wax wings flew in and ate the service berries, they're going to deposit those seeds and excrete those seeds with a little bit of fertilizer, whereas, you know, eliasomes, that's, that's, not, that's not happening. But it's, it's somewhat similar to having that fruit. It's the temptation that gets the animal to, to move it or eat it. That makes perfect sense. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. I mean, I've just never... Eureka moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've just never related it to the idea of like, I mean, the fruits that we would eat. Right. It's, it's that but same exact purpose. Essentially it is. It's just that the seed's not ingested. Huh. The fertilizer comes from it being in the midden of the ant where debris is sort of piled up and it's, it's given it a nice sort of, uh, you know, a, a compost there, if you will, uh, nutrients there for it. All right, moving on to wild geranium. And I do, I do want to say real quick that all these plants that we are talking about are all easily found. These aren't, none of these are rare. I mean, there's a number of species of trillium. Some are more rare than, than others, but to find a species of trillium, not hard. Spring beauty is everywhere. Mayapple is very common. Violets are very common. Wild geranium is another one that's very common. This one has one of the first kind of facts that I learned about spring ephemerals with their seeds. Oh, this is really neat. This is this fascinating. This is cool. Yeah. Fascinating. So what is up with their seeds? Well, first of all, they're sometimes called crane's bill. So the seeds are a bit like the bill of a crane, the bird that's a crane. Um, they're long, they're long uh, seeds. They have five parts to them and as the seed matures, it dries out and it puts a little bit of tension on the seed and eventually simultaneously those five parts burst open and the seeds fly out a little bit like touch me not or, or jewelweed as it's known. But that's not it. Once they're dispersed a few feet, they actually creep. They creep along the ground. They have this, this appendage called an awn. It's like a tail that when it's wet outside, the tail is stretched out. And when it dries a little bit, the moisture content goes down, it curls up. And so it's basically creeping along the ground. And, and botanists would suggest that that's to to move itself into a suitable place to grow. So if there's a crack in the soil, it can kind of push itself into the soil, into cracks and crevices and get a really nice place to germinate. So theoretically, it would increase its chances of, of germinating. So if you ever see a seed moving along the ground... Don't panic. Don't panic. It's probably <laughs> wild geranium. It's good. It's a creeping good geranium. Know. That's what it is. It's, it's a clever device when you think about the, the diversity. All of this is because plants are static they grow in one place so they have to have the means to move their pollen from one plant to another they have to have a means to move their seeds from one place to another and that's where all all of this diversity stems from that static nature of plants which is really incredible yeah i mean i'm already we've talked about yeah i mean seeds moving on their own essentially ants moving them you've mm -hmm. talked about like with service berries it's that's a tree and a fruit mm -hmm. which are delicious um, but, you know, it's something True. that birds eat and disperse. So, I mean, right then and there, that's three simple ones. There's, I mean, well, no, four, because you even talked about the touch-me-nots, how they just explode. Yeah. Um, which, mm -hmm. if you're unfamiliar with touch-me-nots, chances are, if you grew up in this area and as a kid, you probably played with touch-me-nots quite a lot. You might not know what they are, but you certainly, you know, play with them um, to get them to explode. It's just a, yeah, a cool thing to do. Next one I want to talk about is wild ginger. Mm -hmm. And I like this one because it's, it, it, it's a very, to me, it's, it's always something that's very humble. You know, the, the blooms are very, yes. I mean, they're, they're beautiful, but it's not something, they're not screaming out, hey, look at me, look at me. Yeah, I have to search for them. That's the really nice thing about ginger is they're so low to the ground and they're sort of a purplish maroon color and they're a beautiful bell shape. 
but they don't they don't scream at you like bright colored flowers do and they're under very big heart-shaped leaves so you have to be really looking for these but that that cup potentially um, provides a little bit of shelter to insects so theoretically it could be that those cups are actually increasing the the habitation of pollinators around them too which which is kind of interesting the ground is a source of flies um, that are drawn to dull red colors and the flies, it would seem, pollinate these these plants. So, you know, flies looking for the thorn carcasses of animals that might have died over the winter. It makes sense that they would be attracted to this darker, duller, reddish sort of color. It, it also produces seeds. Uh, it, mm. It produces seeds, but it also, uh, like many plants, has have as the underground stems called rhizomes too. So you get usually dense clusters of, of ginger. You won't miss it because of those wonderful heart-shaped leaves. Where the leaves branch, you can see these really, really neat bell-shaped flowers. And wild ginger is also um, supposed to help with flatulence, I believe, correct? Have you used it? No. Okay. No. <laughs> I haven't tried. Uh People do eat it. It's not. It, it is potentially a, a carcinogen, but people certainly in the 1700s and 1800s consumed it. Um, it's it was, the root, though, right? I mean, the, the yeah, root is the part. Yeah, it's the root, and, and it, it really does taste a bit like the ginger that you have in your kitchen, but it's a completely different plant. That plant is from the, the tropics, um, but people would put it into perhaps soups, casseroles, and it was often used, I think, to flavor tainted meat to give it a, a, a more palatable taste. So you're, <laughs> so, so you're adding a carcinogen to bad meat hey, to make it palatable. It was the 1700s. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's right. All right. So there's one more. And again, this, you know, all these plants are, are very common, easy to find. And this next one is unfortunately extremely easy to find. It's an invasive. So... This is a plant that is not native to this area. It was brought in, um, and I'm not sure when this one was brought in, but it's, it's lesser celandine. And as an invasive, that means that there are not the normal population checks to keep this plant from just taking over. And if I may, I have one more little rhyme for you here. You're going to sing again? You're going to, yep, yep. So... Um, <laughs> Tony, we need some more beats here. As a species, I'm invasive. No holds barred, I'm going to make it. In a new land, I take my tricks and place it. Enemies, my tricks, they can't take it. Bloom time becomes subjective. The native fauna, I replace it. Lin-Manuel Miranda has had a huge influence on your life. <laughs> Just got to have fun with this stuff. Got to have fun. <laughs> so, lesser celandine, it's an invasive. And I hate to break this to you, but... At the top of the top of the podcast, I purposefully chose a quote from William Wordsworth because I knew you were a fan of William Wordsworth. He's you're from the general area that he yes, was from. Yeah. Um, but he actually has some poems, and Lesser Celandine is was one of his favorite flowers. But now, of course, in England, where he was from, where you're from, it's a native. Native. And it's yeah. actually I read an article about how it's actually kind of starting to come back. Like they actually had issues of losing it here though. <laughs> it all came here. It all, right. It all came here. And I mean, it's a, a battle, a very large battle from us. So when you go over there, do you ever see, you know, when you go back home, do you see? Yes, you do see it, but you don't see it like you see it here. Typically when you see it here, it's, it's around, you know, it, it takes over around streams in wetter areas, and and you can see a whole corridor of it. It's it's it does not establish itself in that way. There, you do not see how profuse it is there because it has, like you said, it has the checks and the balances to it. And it's it's a really tough plant to dig out of the ground, especially here in these clay soils. Boy, is it a lot of work to get out of the ground. It it also, I think. I mean, this is probably a small contributing factor, but a contributing factor is that it is very similar. I mean, extremely similar to a native marsh marigold. Yes. And I've even heard of some, um, one gentleman told me he was at a, a local garden center and found lesser celandine for sale under the label of marsh marigold. 
So some people are buying this thinking it's the native and they're actually planting it highly invasive. And I have a feeling most of those people's yards is probably now taking over. Selendine, right. But also I found, I thought this was interesting, going back to the doctrine of signatures, another name for lesser selendine is pilewort. Any guesses on what pile is a name for? Well, that sure sounds like an expression for hemorrhoids. Yes, I never heard that before. <laughs> so it's a common um, word, actually. If, uh, you know, I guess, hey, if you had hemorrhoids, you could take some lesser selendine. Well, you have so, the ginger now and the um, lesser selendine. Yeah, but it also contains a chemical called ranunculin, um, which is the family ranunculaceae, buttercup family. Um, and that can cause liver damage. So you'll have to go back to the hepatica, I guess. That's that's the chain. That's there, the chain. That's the, the chain the that chain. does not work. There's so. a chain with many broken links. Yeah. Yeah, one thing you can do is, you know, buy from reputable nurseries. If you can, you know, control the invasives in your backyard, identify them and control them, that really, really helps. Um, another way to kind of help plants is just, just not picking them. I know it's so tempting to, to pick wildflowers, but... Some like, like the trilliums take eight eight years to to flourish and flower, and you know if they don't have the perfect conditions or optimal conditions, they might take more than a decade to flower. So in we go, and we go. These are beautiful, and we pick them, and they took ten years to get to that point. So if there's ever a reason not to pick a wildflower, it is trilliums. And it's also a good reminder to be. Uh aware of where you're walking. You know, if you're yeah. going to go off trail, yeah. kind of pay attention because, you know, with things like, you know, seed dispersal by ants, what you'll find is sometimes a little patch of trillium because these ants took all these yeah. in and they all grew. And so, you know, one footstep could destroy, you know, a dozen plants that six or seven years worth of work. And with the lesser selendine as well, because of the way they can reproduce in their little tubers, you know, if you walk through those, those can get stuck in your shoes, and then you walk home, and now you kind of put these you are the tubers dispersal in your agent yard. Suddenly, yeah, yeah. Um, and that can be you know lead to some very, very detrimental consequences. So, so just you know, be aware of where you walk, and you know, observe, uh, you know, observe where you walk, and and the more you pay attention, obviously, the more you'll see as well. So, if you're looking out for these flowers so that you don't step on them, you also get to enjoy them along the way. So one more question before we uh, we take it outdoors. What is your favorite spring ephemeral and why? That's a really hard question. You know, I'm going to say at this moment, Jack in a pulpit. And that's probably a strange choice because it's not the most showy um, plant, but it's just really, really unique looking. It looks like it doesn't belong here. It almost looks tropical, doesn't it? It's got that huge... Hud that's called a spade. It's got that club-like structure inside that's the spadix. But it's also a really super interesting plant. It's one that actually can change its own gender and does from year to year. So as it's coming up for the first couple of years, it is male. It takes less energy to be male and, um, and make pollen than it does to produce berries. So for the first couple of years or so, it's, it's a male plant. And the flowers are at the base of the, the spadix inside this big hud. Um, after a couple of years, if, if everything's right, it turns into a female. And if that's pollinated, if those flowers are pollinated, then we get these beautiful bright red berries, which in and of themselves are absolutely gorgeous. And of course, all the birds and, and, and rodents love them. So yeah, it, it, and, and once those berries have been um, dispersed, the following year it returns to, to being um, a male again because it, it doesn't have the resources to produce the berries. So just from a sort of being quite unique and certainly very unique in how it lives its life, going back and forth between male and female, that just makes it a, a super interesting plant. And, and the history of it is just really interesting too. All right, Tom, so we're at Richardson Memorial Forest. It's one of our nature preserves, so there's no there's no development here. There's no, no parking. <clears throat> no parking, yeah. Um, there's, no, there's no buildings, there's no you know, real developed or maintained trails. Uh, it's 632 acres, so the initial donation in the 70s was only 162 acres from the Richardson family, and so we've been able to build it up to 632 acres. 
There's a. It's basically know, the size, almost the size of Sharon Woods. Sharon Woods is about 730. You know, it's still a, a good, good chunk of land. There's a lot going on here, and I brought you here, of course, to check out the skunk cabbage. So Sounds like a plan. There's a lot of flower. I mean, even here at my feet, I see cut leaf toothwort blooming. Trillium is just about to bloom. It looks like. I see some trout lily. I've seen Virginia water leaf. Uh, there's some Dutchman's breeches that are blooming. So yeah, spring wildflowers, they're, they're kind of interesting. They pop up for a little bit and then they go. Uh, do you know what, do you know why that is, Paul? Why the, why they're just, you, you get to see them for a couple of weeks and then and then they're just done they, and you don't see them again for a whole Basically, other year. Basically, they're just, they're taking advantage of that sunshine. So in another couple of weeks, when these trees leaf out, um, that sunshine is gonna be modeled at best here on the, the forest floor. So they're popping up when that sun is still able to come through and they get their leaves out, they get that energy, they reproduce, they they drop their seed, and then they die back to, to just roots. You know, do you know why wild ginger stays green for so long? I don't. Those leaves will last up until the fall. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, like, I, I, I don't have, know. I, 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 I always say I'm going to research it, and then I instantly forget once I, you know, I don't know, do my reports. <laughs> Whatever I do, it just it just kind of flitters up my brain like a, yeah. like a, like a butterfly, I guess. So we're All gonna, right, we're so how, how far away is this um, skunk cupboard? So for? we'll go about a half mile, and then we'll, we'll cross the creek, and then it's just another, I don't know, two or three tenths of a mile past that. So. Okay. Well, I already see that this trail that we're going on is a little um, rough, so hopefully it calms down a little bit when we get further into the forest. Um, so, I don't it's know. Not too, it's not too bad. It's not, it's I not mean. not too bad. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bumpy. Well, I mean, past this. It's okay. not too bad. Oh yeah, you know it what? Now that I look a little bit out. further on, it kind yeah. of does flatten out a little bit further. So. Flattens out. We'll be good. We'll be there in no time. Cool. I've actually never been here before, so this is kind of neat. Yeah, yeah. But so this, this is going to be fun. Hopefully, hopefully yeah. we get to find this. this. Is... It's kind of late though, isn't it? For skunk cabbage, isn't it kind of? It's a little bit late. I mean, it's still blooming. It's been blooming for you know, um, I mean, six weeks now or so. But um, we'll see it. Okay. Don't worry. All right. Cool. All right. You ready? Absolutely. Let's do it. my first step was immediately in the river. <laughs> I tell you though, my, my feet are dry, so. Made it. Alright, almost there. Over the river and through the woods. Alright Tom, we made it to the marsh. I don't smell any skunk, Paul. It's not, it's not a heavy odor. It, He's made me go through like three miles of forest, <laughs> trunching through marshes, getting soaked through rivers, and I don't even smell any skunk. Well, first off, we haven't even gone a mile. 
<laughs> Second off, you made it across the creek just fine. <laughs> and third, you got to get your nose in there. So this right. skunk cabbage, it'll give off um, two of the chemicals it gives off though. Is one is called putrescine, and another is called cadaverine. Mm. So that kind of gives you an idea. So it's a little late. It, I don't say late. It, it's a little later in the season for skunk cabbage. This is one of the earliest blooming flowers in this area. And it, this was blooming already in the middle of February. So we so, have corpses of the blooms all, all so, around us. Yeah, I mean, there's like some something still out of newer ones. Westeros in the north, just <laughs> dead bodies everywhere except flowers. But you can see, I mean, these leaves are already starting to come out. And typically when you come earlier, you don't, you won't see the leaves unfurled like this. So it's kind of cool when you come at this time, yeah. you can see some of the blooms, but you can also see some of the leaves. I can, I can see why it's called skunk cabbage. Looks a lot like cabbage. Yeah. Kind of makes you want to boil it up and see what it tastes like. Well, if you ate it, I don't know what it will taste like, but I can tell you what it will feel like. Oh yeah? So skunk cabbage is uh, in the Araceae family and it's filled with um, calcium oxalate crystals. So once you started to chew it, and if you swallowed it, it would just feel like millions of needles poking your mouth and down your throat and down your oh. esophagus into your stomach, and so, it would be... So don't boil it and eat it then. Do not eat it, no. Not a good idea to eat it. Um, early but in the calcium's year... calcium's good for you, so... I don't know, right? Well... You can either, you can either drink milk, <laughs> Or get thousands of tiny needles down your throat. I, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll let the listener decide which they choose to do. <laughs> um, but the cool thing is, is because this comes up so early when it's, it's young and fresh, um, box turtles will eat it and black bear will eat it. So obviously we don't have black bear in this area anymore. I was about to say, I don't, I don't think there's too <clears throat> many black bear no. in this forest. It'd be cool to see one kind of, you know. Walking just, across yep, the hillside over just there. Trying, yep, just, I mean, but, deep enough in the forest. Yeah, so when these animals kind of first come out of their um, quote-unquote hibernation. We've had a long discussion about, about that. that. We'll, we'll skip episodes. over that. <laughs> but in their, their quote-unquote hibernation, this is an early food that they that they might be able to eat. Um, but, but it's a bit chilly right now, isn't it, Paul? It it's is. April. Uh, April Fool, I guess the Earth has decided to April Fool us. Um, it's yeah, it's not even 30, 30 degrees yet. I don't know. <laughs> it's about to um, be at 28, 29. But the skunk um, cabbage is warm. Yeah, so how about we test that um, hypothesis out? I actually have a really fancy doodad with me, a, a thermal camera, and we can actually see, supposedly, it uh, generates its own heat so it can melt the snow around it. Right, Paul? Is that the, is that the idea? So it can bloom out of the snow? It does generate its own heat. And it will melt the snow, but that's not really the purpose of it. <gasps> oh. So it's called thermogenesis. And the skunk cabbage, if you were to dig down below the leaves, below the blooms, they have an insane root system um, that actually kind of looks like just long strands of rope. And, you know, one of the, the questions is, okay, if something like skunk cabbage, where they said we're in a marsh, so it's a very wet area, it's a very high nutrient content area, so why would something like this need such huge massive root system if nutrients are so abundant? And the reason is because it stores starch in those roots, and the starch is what it burns to create heat. Um, and so a mammal of a similar size to the bloom would create just as much heat. So how it exactly it does it, it's not, we're not really sure, but it is similar to mammalian cellular respiration. I mean, it is, um, you know, using oxygen to burn that starch. And, and it's to melt the snow around it. So well, it so here's the thing, though, is what that actually does is if you ever have one of those little scent bowls that you heat up, and as you heat up that... I hate those things. Those scenty wax. My wife gets it. Oh, they're the worst. <laughs> well, that's the whole point of that heat is to disseminate that smell. And so that's really what the heat is. On a cold day, it'll, it'll burn that starch to create that heat. And that wafts that cadaverine and putrescine smell I see. to attract things like flies and beetles to pollinate the flowers. So on average, it can stay about 36 degrees above 
the ambient air temperature. Really? Well, how about we test so, that out? Let's, let's see. do it. Where's, where's, so I my, think, uh, where's my little gadget here? I think there's going to be one right, right here by my foot that might uh, be a good test subject. Then I'm going to have to give this thing a big whiff. Um, I've read about skunk cabbage is kind of hard to come by. So I've read about it, but I actually have been told about it and I thought I saw it over at Glenwood Gardens, but I don't know whether if it was skunk cabbage or, or just a, a leaf of some kind that I misidentified, which yeah, is probably it, the case. It is a rare plant, partially because we just, like I said, we're in a marsh. This is not a common habitat that you find in Ohio. Um, other state, it's, it's much more abundant and I believe it's invasive in England. Is it really? Yeah. Hmm. So. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a really unique looking flower. So if you're familiar with Jack in the Pulpit, you know, it's, the name is very apropos. You have the little flower stalk in the middle, which is Jack, and then the hood that comes over it, which is the pulpit. Um, and this is similar, and that stalk of flowers is called a spadix, and the little hood that comes over top of it is called a spathe. And that's a characteristic of that Araceae family. Um, and so that stalk of, of flowers, that spadix, it's just a you know, conglomeration of flowers, essentially. So my hand is 85 degrees, according to this. All right. So let's, let's see how warm our, our cabbage is. Look at this. This is a pretty one right here. I think I might take a picture of this one. It's, 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 a, it's a champion, I think. Ugh. So let's get down here. Uh, I can't even see it. This uh, thing is slightly low resolution. I wonder if there's a way to focus it somehow. If I put my hand by it. Oh, there we go. Oh, there it is. It's about the same temperature, Paul. <laughs> can you get? Can you get inside it? Uh, let's see. Oh, I, of the blue. You know what? Seeing as how it's late in the season, I wonder if it's. Oh, oh, it went up to 50. Let's see. Where, where is it? Where's my finger? Finger, where, see, I'm not even looking at it. Here you go, maybe if I put it sideways. And then, oh, yep, 51. 50, 53 is the. So 53 inside, what's the ground right around it? 30. So 23 degrees difference? Yep. So That's in, pretty cool. inside of the bloom, it's 53 degrees. The ground around it is 30 degrees. Each flower stalk has male and female flowers, but what's cool about it is the male and female flowers don't bloom at the same time on one stalk. Oh. So the female flowers on one uh, spadix or one stalk will bloom first. And then when those are done, once those have been pollinated, then the male flowers will, will bloom. And so that way the plant does not pollinate itself. So if they're blooming at different times, this one still might be in the female blooming stage or the staminate stage. And one next to it might be in the male pistillate stage. And so they can pollinate each other or one will pollinate the other, but one plant will not pollinate itself. Um, and, the, and so again, when that produces that heat and it wafts that scent, that will attract things like flies and beetles, things that would be attracted to carcasses because they, they can you know, chemically uh, recognize those scents. And so they're attracted to that flower thinking that, hey, this might be a carcass that I can lay eggs on, but um, you know, instead it's the flower. And so then they will grab the pollen on their, their body, move to the next one, release those pollen into the female flowers to, in order to reproduce. The other thing about the roots, and this is the coolest thing to me, I mean, they, they produce heat, they you know, burn starch, they have a smell to them, they, they're just all these interesting things, their root system is incredible, but to me the coolest part of it is if you were to take a, like a strand, for lack of a better term, of their roots and dissect it, you would find... Frogs. <laughs> not quite. Oh. Um, but you would find, like I talked about the, the flower being the spathe and the spadix, and you would find a new one in those roots. And it just keeps going down the roots, oh, almost weird. like a Pez dispenser. And so they get smaller and smaller, so they're already prepared for the next year. So it's like teeth, but with 
yeah I mean it's, it's just like just a flower each so you know, the roots blooms that just go in a row straight down and the flower is the, the tooth roots. inside in a sense yeah yeah, yeah. that's kind of interesting um, they said I just I think of it as like a Pez dispenser you know you pop one out and there's one to go for next year Sorry. Um, I mean all the way to where they're like the size of a pinhead I mean, wow. Tiny all the way down these root structures. I'm really excited for Game of Thrones, so I can't stop thinking of <laughs> White Walkers and zombies. and. I've never watched it. So. <gasps> You've never watched Game of Thrones? I refuse to. Oh my word, that's crazy. What do you mean you refuse to? I'm, we're recording. I'll, I'll keep my opinion to myself <laughs> right now. That's such a good show. Yeah, here, um, let, me, let me tell you what I think of Game of Thrones. <laughs> All right, and that's my that's my thought on Game of Thrones. So he should still watch the show. It's a really good show, and it makes you think of these skunk cabbage like coming out from this marsh, and like something out of Pet Cemetery, and just like starting to crawl up our legs and start to devour us with their stashy well, roots. You know, if you if you Google a picture of the skunk cabbage roots, you would totally see how they could just like totally stand up and start to walk on these roots and like <laughs> overtake you. Um, That's pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Well, yeah, like if you think of like uh, in the movie War of the Worlds, the alien, their ships, they have like those really long legs with that tiny little top to yeah, it. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, that's what these would look, except a lot more legs, but that's what these would, would look like. So oh, okay. I could totally see that happening. Um, and we're at the epicenter of it all. We're the first to go. Well, well, thanks for yeah. thanks for taking me out here and yeah. checking out the skunk well, cabbage. And one other cool thing that Tom you would appreciate about this as well, just to continue on with your your um, zombie imagination here, is that because these are so wet, these leaves, you know, like there's all these, you know, tree leaves here, decomposing and leaves. They decompose and so they they dry out and they break down. These leaves never dry out. They just mm. turn into a, they dissolve into a black goo. Really? And so things like snails will eat them. Um, the leaves get big enough that like common yellow throats will nest in them. So mm. they really, and they're, they're, because their root system is, it can go so deep, they can live to be a hundred years old. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and these root systems can go down so deep and then the root systems actually grow down and then they contract. So they continue to pull the plant down deeper and deeper. And so when you get roots that deep, I mean, these are things, these roots are spreading nutrients all throughout the, the system. So they're at and least so, like six or seven inches deep. I mean, probably you're talking, probably talking a couple feet potentially. Oh, okay. um, and so, I mean, these are incredibly important plants to the ecosystem here just for, you know, nesting space, movement of nutrients. Um, they're, they're food for certain animals and, and, and insects. And it looks like a lot of it. I mean, how far does it grow into the, it looks like they grow, grow pretty deep into the, um, marsh itself like it, I see them yeah I mean we're standing right on the edge of the marsh and there's some that are actually growing kind of out of the marsh yeah like I mean on the it's, very edge. it's still obviously very wet but yeah I mean they're going in 20 30 feet I don't know I've never I mean you can't walk into the marsh and you never get back out I'm kind of curious how good a erosion control they are seeing as how they bloom so early in the roots are so deep. I don't know. I bet the I bet they're really good for erosion and such. So I don't. I'd be curious to see how far those roots do go down and if they just plow into that clay. See, I, I want to give one of these a. I know I know they might be past their prime, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stick my nose in one and give it a whiff. There's one right there. Uh, it's a little bit more on dry ground. Yeah, let's, let's let's Make see. Make sure the bloom's still in there. I don't know. Oh yeah, that's a good. That's a good skunky smell right there. You smell it? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think the I I think you're right. I think it's already bloomed and it's already gone down, but there must be residual. Uh, what were the names of the two stinky? Putrescine, uh, putrescine and cadaverine. Oh yeah, that's that's pretty gross. It smells like you know what it smells like. It smells like when um, like the, the, not this not that this would ever happen in my house but yeah if you had like a like a dead squirrel in your house or something and you can smell a dead animal smell and you're kind of like oh yeah. something has died and i can't find it that's kind of what it smells like there so that's, that's pretty cool so it shouldn't be called skunk cabbage because it doesn't really smell like skunk to me it's it, it should be called like cadaver cabbage you know or i kind of wonder though too if 
I mean, it most likely, yeah, it's because of the smell. They call it skunk cabbage. But it also kind of comes out around the time that skunks start to come out. That's true. And there's other things like, um, like lesser celandine. Celandine is an old word for swallow. And it would bloom at the same time the swallows would return. Mm. So that's why it, it got that, that term, celandine. So I wonder if it has maybe more to do with the timing of the bloom I and could, not the smell. Yeah, because the smell... But it, it'd be kind of a strange coincidence to call it a skunk cabbage and not refer to the smell. Yeah, I mean, it does smell. It definitely smells. Yeah. But I would say it smells like a like a, a dead animal, yeah, I wanna, to be honest. I want to get in it. Ow. All right. If somebody has a camera on us right now, <laughs> uh, we're, we're going to be all over the news. Yeah, yeah. Smells oh, like, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one there. That smells like a dead body, right? Like, that bit, doesn't yeah, smell does. like a skunk to me. That smells no, like... No, definitely not skunk. That's definitely dead right. body. That's pretty. You can see in this one how purple that is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, look at that. It's purple like decomposing. Oh. Yeah, I'm not even sure if I mentioned the color. I mean, that, that spathe that I talked about, the hood around the flower stalk, is a purple... A really nice purple color, kind of a mottled purple um, against this backdrop of these green leaves. It's really a pretty, I mean, a pretty flower, very unique. I just got some of it on my hands. And you know what? It smells like, you know, when you go fishing and you've been using night crawlers for like uh -huh. three hours and then your hands just smell of like nasty night crawler. Yep. That's kind of what my hands smell like right now. So there you go. There you go. So. So if you ever want to go out with an interpreter and he smells like decomposing Nightcrawler, then that's just something you're going to have to get used to. <laughs> because he's going out and smelling it's skunk, skunk cabbage. cabbage. <laughs> I at least hope it's skunk cabbage. Yeah, so it look, you know, when you see us uh, on our programs, we look so glamorous and we, 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 we look like we drive million dollar cars. But if you get close <laughs> enough, we smell like dead bodies. So there you go. I don't think anybody has thought we drive million-dollar cars. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I look pretty. I look. I can look pretty fancy when I want to. Um. <laughs> Maybe hundred-dollar cars. Hundred-dollar so. cars. There you go. That's a little bit more like it. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, this is cool. So. Yeah. You wouldn't think. I mean, uh, flowers. I mean, they don't. The, the, um, plants. They, 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 then some people might not think of them as quite as exciting as critters and and you know animals and such but but they can be really interesting and uh like uh, one of my favorites is uh cleavers seeing as how they just stick to people yeah. and uh, a bed straw i guess is another word for them yeah i can i can chuck them at people and it sticks to them so i mean there's there's a lot of interesting things about plants that you know you might not necessarily but just 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 by looking at it you might you might think oh look it's a green thing i mean that doesn't that's kind of boring but they they can be pretty pretty interesting so yeah we, we talked a lot about that with julie you know, the top of the podcast and how, I mean, these things are hardy to, they come out and really, I mean, for them, very harsh conditions. You know, it can be cold, freezing temperatures, even snow. Um, they have a short time to, to do what they do, to bloom, to pollinate, to reproduce. And then they kind of die back and they just, they survive as roots basically for the rest of the year. Um, but they, you know, they're exceptional things. I mean, some of them have to be seven or eight years old before they even bloom for the first time. Skunk cabbage, it's estimated they could live up to 100 years. Yeah, I mean, there's a, certainly a lot more to them, but um, just, the, kinda, just the aesthetic value alone is is invaluable. It's kind of like the way people used to just fill in uh, vernal ponds because they didn't, they just, yeah, it's just a pond. There's no fish in it. What's the point? It's useless. Turns out they're like major habitats for salamanders and frogs and, and all kinds of, they help, you know, prevent uh, flooding and erosion and all this stuff. And and so so a lot of a lot of these things on first sight might not. I mean, we're currently looking at a bunch of cabbages in in water, pretty much. And uh, but 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 there's a lot more uh, beneath the beneath the surface. So right, pretty right. interesting. You never there's there's nothing in nature that is not needed and useful and essential. Except for honeysuckle and and and, uh, and mosquitoes. They're the worst. <laughs> And a few people I work yeah. with that I won't mention. No. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, <laughs> we're out. <laughs>
<laughs> Not you, Paul. You're great. I'm sure. Dragging you out here on this 20 degree day. But, that was fun. I like that. Was, I, I like going on adventures. Folks, that is our show for today. I hope we have inspired you to get outside and find some spring ephemerals for yourself. Let us know what you find and what your favorites are. And you can post them on social media with hashtag GreatParks. Check out Farbach Warner, Withrow Nature Preserve, Glenwood Gardens, Shawnee Lookout uh, for starters. There are some, some good places with a lot of good wildflowers. For more information on those parks and all of our parks and information on our upcoming programs and events, head over to greatparks.org. Thanks, Julie, for joining us today. And of course, thank you, listener, for joining us today on Take It Outdoors, a podcast where you can enjoy the outdoors from the indoors. Check back next month for our next episode. And until then, I'm Paul Sievers. Get outside. Enjoy nature.